Uh, this is such an honor. I love just preaching from God's word here on Sunday mornings. I've loved that you've gotten a chance to hear from some of our other pastors. You can get a chance to hear from a couple more throughout the rest of this series. But I hope you've enjoyed really this series on finding freedom in the book of Galatians. Galatians is really one of my favorite books of the Bible because, as you guys have learned, really from the very beginning all the way to the very end, Paul is just going to be feeding us, spoon-feeding gospel truths. Like every letter of every word is intended to point us to one simple truth. The simple truth we have been stating week after week. That our salvation is found through faith in Christ alone. So what Paul has done already in the first chapter or so, and what he's going to continue to do throughout the rest of the book, is to come at that one simple truth from some different angles. He's going to address some of the lies, some of the misconceptions, some of the false gospels that have been spreading throughout Galatia. And his whole purpose for this is to point these believers back to the true gospel. Because he knows that if they actually understand and receive and embrace that truth, that it'll change their lives. If they truly understand the value of the gospel. But to be honest, he wasn't seeing a whole lot of proof of that. Because even though these people had heard the gospel, even though they had received it, really they were still living the same lives they were before. They were going back to the same old habits, the same old tradition, the same old religion. And I wish I could say that things have changed, right? We're sitting here some 2,000 years later. But the fact is, this book is still so relevant to us because we're doing the same exact thing. Right? Many of us have heard the good news of the gospel. Many of us have received it, and yet there are still many lives that have yet to be changed by it. It actually brings to mind a story I heard a little while back about a Canadian school teacher named Craig Henshaw. Mr. Henshaw bought a lottery ticket one day as he was starting his summer break. The teacher, he had a few months off, and so he bought this lottery ticket, and he put it up on his fridge, and then he left on an extended summer vacation. Now, he's a school teacher, so this wasn't some like, extravagant summer vacation. It was just him trying to make the best use of his time while he had this time off, right? And so he did what he could, but he recalled afterwards, thinking back, the fact that he was really counting pennies on that trip. Counting pennies, just sort of scraping to get by, doing whatever he could on what little he could afford. Completely oblivious to the fact that this lottery ticket that he had put on his fridge before he left was actually a winner. In fact, Mr. Henshaw remained oblivious even after he returned back from his vacation. It wasn't until school was about to start again that he actually thought, hey, I should check and see if the numbers on that ticket hit. And wouldn't you know, he checked the numbers and they did, in fact, hit. He was pumped. He had won $21,000, or so we thought. See, in his excitement, he did some of the math wrong. He was probably a history teacher or something like that. But <laughs> the point is, he calls... This is a true story. He calls, and the spokesperson that he reaches tells him he actually won $21.4 million. Needless to say, Mr. Henshaw was caught by surprise. Because for months, he had $21.4 million hanging there on his fridge while he was over here counting pennies and scraping to get by. And as I heard this story, I thought that there is no more vivid picture of what it looks like for those who have heard the gospel, those who have even received it, but have yet to have their lives changed by it. See, the reality is there were many in the Galatian church, and there still are many today who have that gift, who have God's grace just hanging on their fridge, yet they're content counting pennies. 
Either they're completely oblivious to the gospel, not even knowing the value of it, or they might see it like he did at first, worth something but not enough to change their lives. Wherever you may be at on that spectrum. Hello, there you go. My hope is that, <laughs> that God would reveal to you the true value of the gospel this morning so that your life might be changed by it. My prayer is that you would take that ticket off of the fridge and cash it in, so to speak, so that God would transform your life. And I believe God is going to work here this morning through his word. Do you? All right. Well, let's pray. Father, we just pause right now. We pause right now to fix our focus on you. We just want to behold your glory, behold your truth this morning. Lord, I ask that you would speak to us through your word, that you would reveal to us the powerful, life-changing truth of who we are in Jesus. We pray this in his holy name. And all God's people said, amen. 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 Well, we are going to be in Galatians chapter 2 this morning. So if you guys have your Bibles or your Bible apps, you can go ahead and turn there now. And as you do, let me just give a quick refresh for those of you who haven't been with us the last couple of weeks. Let you know what we're diving into here in Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia. Now, Galatia is in really what is now modern-day Turkey. And in Paul's letter, what he's doing is he's writing to these churches, many of which he planted himself or many of the pastors of which he trained up himself because they have been uh, tempted to believe in this false gospel. They've been tempted by this group of people called the Judaizers. Now, these are people who believed in Jesus, but they also believed that in order to have true salvation, that you needed to have faith in Jesus and follow the law of Moses down to the letter. So it was a combination of faith and works that would earn salvation. And so what was happening is that they were leading these people astray, tempting these believers back into tradition, back into religion, back into thinking that there was something that they had to do in order to earn their salvation. And of course, when you start to pull somebody towards works, you're pulling them away from God's free gift of grace. We learned last week in Pastor Josiah's message, right, that freedom, the freedom found in Christ is a free gift from God, that there is nothing we could ever do to earn it. And as we're about to find out, it wasn't just uh, any average, ordinary believers, so to speak, in the church that was falling for these things. Even the very leaders of the church were falling victim to this same temptation. And so what we're going to see as we look to Galatians chapter 2 is Paul recounting a heated exchange with none other than Peter, the disciple himself. This is the guy that Jesus identified as the one to lead his church. And Paul's telling us that he also fell into this same trap. So look with me if you would. At Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. It says, But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now let's pause right there because Paul is digging up some of this past beef with Peter, not to sort of put him on blast, but in order to teach these Galatians a lesson. In order for us to understand that lesson, we have to sort of understand the context. 
right? We don't live in a day and age where we use this language of Jews and Gentiles, and we kind of all eat with each other, so we don't really understand the full context. But prior to Jesus, the Jews never ate with Gentiles. They didn't eat the same food. They didn't sit in the same room. They did not even associate with each other. That's why Jesus catches so much flack from the Pharisees when he goes and he eats with tax collectors and with sinners, because in, in their mind, this was strictly forbidden. These people were unclean. You weren't supposed to even come anywhere near them. Of course, they didn't know that Jesus came to change all of that. And we see later on in Acts chapter 10, right, where Peter has this dream and, and God comes to him and communicates to him that all the things that were once deemed unclean are now considered clean because of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. That means that the food and the company they were once prohibited from enjoying they were now able to enjoy because of Jesus. And so Peter says this in Acts 10, verses 34 and 35. He says, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. This was huge, huge news. Now the gospel could be shared with the Gentiles. Now Peter could eat with the Gentiles. And y'all enjoy some bacon. This was a big deal, right? Everybody could enjoy some bacon. There is no more delicious way to obey the word of God than to enjoy some bacon. We're in Texas, right? We enjoy some of that. All right. Well, Peter immediately starts preaching to the Gentiles. He immediately starts eating with them, starts associating with them. And what do you know? By the end of chapter 10, the Holy Spirit falls on them the same way he does on the Jews in Acts chapter 2. And while this may have caused the gospel to spread like never before, it also opened up the opportunity for there to be some conflict. It's kind of what we're seeing right here, right? That's what happens when you bring diversity into close proximity. There is always conflict. Diversity plus proximity equals conflict. It's pretty much a guarantee in this life. Think about it, even in your own context, when you bring a diverse group of people into close proximity with one another, there is bound to be conflict. It's because these people, they bring with them their experiences. They bring with them their tradition. They bring with them their religions. All these things that they hold so tightly to. That's what's happening here in the early church, right? We have the Judaizers who are saying, no, you've got to have faith plus works. And then you've got the Gentiles over here saying, no, we were told it was just faith. And they're coming together and they're having to iron these things out together. When you bring diversity into close proximity, conflict ensues. And like I said, that conflict, it's a foregone conclusion. That's just in our human nature. It is bound to happen. The only say we have in the matter is how we respond to it. And what we see here is Peter responds to the conflict with compromise rather than holding firm to his conviction. Are y'all tracking with me? Peter found himself in a place where diversity was brought into close proximity. And instead of standing firm on his conviction, he compromised. He reverted back to his old habits. He reverted back to tradition, back to religion. And so Paul has no choice. Paul has to confront Peter in that moment. And the reason why Paul brings this up again isn't to like throw shade at Peter or to cast him in a bad light, but to confront the Galatian church because they were doing the same exact thing. They too were compromising under the threat of social pressure and they were turning their back on the true gospel. So Paul is left with no choice but to respond to them. And he responds to them in the same way he does to Peter and in the same way I believe he is going to respond to us this morning. That's by calling us out. That's by pointing us up. And that's by bringing us in. Those of you note takers, you can jot those down. Those are my three really simple notes this morning. 
that Paul and the Galatian churches, and Paul is calling out the Galatian church. He's calling them out. He's pointing them up, and he is bringing them in. Let's start with that first point, getting called out. I'm going to cut to the chase here and say that Paul is calling out Peter because what he's doing is he's succumbing to perhaps the biggest threat to the gospel. It's the word hypocrisy. What Peter had been proclaiming, the good news of the free grace of God, was different than what he had been demonstrating. He was preaching one way, and yet he was living another. And the reality is that you and I, we have that same tendency, don't we? When faced with social pressure, especially to revert back to counting pennies, to lose sight of the life-changing value of the gospel, and to slip back into tradition, back into religion. So I want to speak for just a moment about why this is, because I think there are two very clear factors that we see here in the story and that we experience ourselves that cause us to want to slip back into the old way of living. Those two things are fear and pride. Fear and pride work together to fuel hypocrisy. We can see that here in this passage. Paul tells us right, that Peter feared the circumcision party. It's just another term for the Judaizers. He feared them because these Judaizers, they were well-known, right? They were outspoken. They could be hostile at times. And so Peter knew, if I upset these guys, they might tear me down. They might change the way other people view me. So what does he do? He becomes a people pleaser, right? Out of a place of fear, he chooses to protect his reputation, and he pulls back from the Gentiles. He stops eating with them. He stops hanging out with them. He just distances himself from them. It's the same sort of thing you see in an elementary school cafeteria, right? This is a place where lifelong friendships are built or they're broken based off of peer pressure. I know I'm not the only one who had somebody leave them to go sit at the cool kids table, right? Some of y'all were that person that left at the cool kids table. Shame on you, but <laughs> we'll get to that another day. But that's essentially the modern day equivalent of what Peter is doing here, right? He's going to hang out with the mean girls, and making this decision out of fear. And it's a decision that's ultimately rooted in pride because Peter's focus was on self-preservation. He didn't want to lose this social standing that he had built up. After all, he was, he was a leader. What would people think of him if he went against what these people said? This is why Paul calls out Peter and why we need to be called out too. Because peer pressure isn't going away anytime soon. In fact, the more diverse our environment gets, the closer in proximity we get to one another, the more opportunities we are going to have to give in to this social pressure. The more opportunities we're going to have to slide back into old habits, back into tradition, back into religion. And let me just say this, just because you belong in a diverse church family doesn't mean that you're immune to this. In fact, this makes you more susceptible to it. Diversity plus proximity equals conflict that's why we must remain sensitive to each other and stand firm in our convictions in the gospel so that the the gospel that we proclaim with our lips it adds up to the one we're living with our lives that's why peter gets called out here because those two things aren't lining up the gospel he proclaimed with his lips was different than the one that he was living out so let me ask you church do they line up in your life does the gospel you proclaim, the one that you read, does it line up with the way that you are living your life? Does the way you live your life reflect the freedom you found in Jesus or your actions more focused on saving yourself? I want you to wrestle with that for a moment. 
Because the thing is, a life focused on self-preservation is a life that denies the good news of Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. A life that is focused on self-preservation is a life that denies the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is impossible to focus on saving yourself while at the same time dying to yourself. Period. Those two things don't line up, no matter how bad we want them to. That's why we constantly find ourselves in these situations, right, where we have a choice between compromising on our beliefs or standing firm in our convictions. But y'all, you can't have your cake and eat it too, so don't seek to please people. Seek to please God. Jesus puts it a little bit more bluntly because he, he can. He's Jesus. He says this in Matthew 10, 28. He says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. See, the fact is, Peter was actually there to hear Jesus speak these words. Just a few years later, we see that even he, as the leader in the church, had given into this temptation. And he was living out a different gospel than the one that he preached. That's why this is such a big deal for Paul. Because these actions of Peter, he's the, the top dog, he's the spokesman in the church. And yet his actions stood in direct opposition to the message that the church was proclaiming. So Paul says, hey, I don't care if I have to break rank. Because what you're doing right now is putting the very gospel at risk. And he speaks to the most central point of the gospel here coming up in verses 15 through 19. Join me there. He says this, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then the servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. So what Paul does here is he actually shows himself to be a good pastor because he could have just, you know, said this and convicted them, called them out, and then dropped the mic and walk away. But instead, he sticks around to point them up. It's the second point for you note takers this morning. He sticks around to point them up. See, Paul knew that the real issue that was plaguing the Galatian church wasn't who was going to sit next to who at the church potluck. It wasn't what type of food they were going to serve. No, the central issue here was this issue of justification. So Paul points them up to make sure that they know the true and only source of their justification was faith in Christ alone. Now, I want to take a, a step back here because I know justification isn't a word that we use in our everyday vernacular. Right? And this is actually the first time Paul uses it in the book of Galatians. So I thought I'd take a moment to help you understand its meaning. I think some of us can tend to hear these words and we think, oh, that's a, that's a theological word. That's for our pastors to understand. I'm just going to trust them in it. No, don't trust us in this. Learn this yourself. Understand this for yourself. Because I think actually it's in the understanding of this word and its meaning where we actually come to embrace the true value of the gospel. This is where we go from counting pennies to really cashing in on the value of the gospel. Let me unpack this for you. I'm going to start just with a simple definition. We're going to put it up on the screen here. Justification at a foundational level is an act of God that declares a sinner righteous and restores them to right relationship with himself forever. 
It's an act of God that declares a sinner righteous and restores that relationship with him forever. You know, the picture that often gets painted on this one is that of a courtroom scene. Maybe you've heard this before, where a prisoner comes in to be tried for their crime. And what happens is, if that prisoner is found to be innocent, then they're considered to be justified, right? He would be considered to be proven a just man. On the contrary, if he's found to be guilty, then he is condemned and he cannot and will not ever be justified. Right? I suppose he could be pardoned, maybe have some of the, the punishment of that crime lessened. But the fact is, once you're proven guilty, you will always be guilty of that crime. But the gospel, the gospel paints a different picture for us. The gospel tells us that even though the verdict has come down, even though we have all indeed been declared guilty of sinning against God, that we will not be condemned. Because Jesus took on that punishment in order that we might be justified. So what this means is that our record of guilt has been wiped clean. Jesus has taken that guilt to the cross and he has exchanged it with his righteousness. He did what you and I can never do. He lived a perfect life. He was the only just man. And then he died the death that we deserve to die by laying down that life in order that we might take on his righteousness, in order that we might be justified, declared not guilty, not now, not ever. Not because of anything that we have done, but because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. This is why Paul points us up to say, hey, our only true source of justification is in Christ. Faith in Christ alone, not anything that you have ever done. Right? Your good deeds, your good works, coming to church every Sunday, it means nothing. Y'all stop counting pennies. Do you realize how ridiculous that looks to God? We're counting pennies and we've got $21 million hanging there on our fridge. And I love that it's Paul that delivers this message because before Paul encountered the risen Jesus, Paul was like the penny counter to end all penny counters. Right? We read even last week, right, we learned that he was the Pharisee of all Pharisees. He knew every law out of the letter. He took every chance he could to stack those pennies, thinking it was somehow going to impress God, that this was somehow going to earn him his salvation. And while I know none of us have gone to the lengths that he did, the reality is we often find ourselves doing the same thing, counting our pennies. So I want to take a quick look at two ways that I think we are most prone to counting the pennies in our lives. The first is when we justify ourselves by comparison to others. When we justify ourselves by comparison to others. This is when you claim to be righteous based off of those around you. This is kind of low-hanging fruit because all you got to do is be better than your friends. You know, you show up to church on Sunday and they're not there. You're like, all right, there's my justification. See, and before Christ, Paul was winning that competition, wasn't he? Pastor Josiah laid that out for us last week. In chapter 1, he says, hey, I was, I was the head of my class. Right? I was born to the right family. I aced all the tests. There was nobody that was a better Jew than me. Well, good for you, Paul. That earns you nothing in regards to your salvation. Give him a gold star if he wants. But it earns him nothing. That's why the great Charles Spurgeon, when preaching on this passage, he encouraged his own congregation to be not proud of race, face, place, or grace. He's basically saying, hey, your justification isn't found in any of these things. There's nothing about your Americanness, your Africanness, your Hispanicness that makes you better than anybody else. There's nothing about some specific gift God has given you, some place you were born into, 
some test you pass, some certification. You have some ordination that you have received that makes you better than anybody else. When it all boils down to it, there is no need for us to compare ourselves to one another because we all have one problem, and that's sin. And we all have one hope, that's Jesus. So go ahead. If you want to compare yourself to others, do that all you want. But all you're doing is stacking pennies. It's meaningless. Don't count pennies. God's gift of grace is a free gift for all. So that's number one. The second one, we count pennies when we justify ourselves through self-promotion. Now, I know we're all familiar with self-promotion. In today's day and age, we've got social media and stuff, but that's not the type of self-promotion I'm talking about. I'm not talking about making yourself look good in front of other people. We're all pretty good at that. We count pennies when we try to justify ourselves by making ourselves look good before God. That's the type of self-promotion I'm talking about, like doing good works and then holding them up to God, saying, see, look how good I am. It's kind of like when a two-year-old makes a mess in his diaper and presents it to his parents like it's the Mona Lisa. I know I can't be the only one who's had that experience. It may sound funny, but it's less fun when we realize that's exactly what we do when we present our good works before God. Prophet Isaiah addresses this in chapter 64. He says, we are all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, they are nothing but filthy rags. Come on, a homework assignment. Go look at the true meaning of that word. It's too graphic to share. What Isaiah is trying to point out, what God's trying to point out through Isaiah, is there is nothing filthier than even our, our best deeds. In other words, there's no filter you can put on your life that's going to somehow impress God. There's no public relations spin artist in the world that could improve your image with him. So here's what you're going to have to do. You're going to have to look beyond yourself to find your justification. You're going to have to stop trying to gain God's approval through your own good works and to put your trust in the finished work of his son. Because here's the thing. God's not impressed with your filthy rags. He does not want them. What he wants is your humility. What he wants is your brokenness. What he really wants you to bring to him is your sin. Because what he longs to show you is that sin that you are bringing to him, that it has already been nailed to the cross along with his son. Look with me if you would. Verses 20 and 21. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So Paul calls us out and he points us up, all to eventually bring us in. We're brought into an entirely new way of life. Being crucified with Christ means that the old Jew is gone. The old Jew is dead. Your old way of life has been nailed to the cross along with your sins. I think sometimes we think that the old us is just set aside somewhere. It's tucked away in some closet. Maybe it's just set aside on Sunday mornings, but that's not true. The old Jew is gone. It's not coming back. The old you died on that cross. Hallelujah for that. The sins that once weighed you down, they are dead. 
the addiction that once controlled you, it is gone for good. That big mistake you made, it no longer defines you. It is dead. It is gone. Somebody needs to hear that this morning. The old you is dead. It has been crucified with Christ, which means that you now have the freedom to walk in the new life. That's got to excite somebody here. This right here is the truth that lies at the heart of the gospel, that you have been crucified with Christ, that it is no longer you who live, but that it is Christ who lives in you. And if you want to know how to find freedom, this is it right here. The only way to find freedom is to be crucified with Christ so that it's him who's living through you. So let's talk about what it looks like to walk in this freedom. I want to unpack this just for a minute as I invite the band back up and bring this message to a close. Because I hold to the fact that there's nothing you can do to earn God's grace. But man, there are a whole lot of things we can do to live in light of it. And so here's some important truths Three things that are true of you if you are crucified with Christ. The first is that his resurrection becomes yours. If you have been crucified with Christ, his resurrection becomes yours. God's word tells us that we have been crucified with Christ, but not just that. That we, like him, will one day enjoy the resurrection life. It's what Jesus himself speaks to in John chapter 11. When he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. That means that we can walk in the freedom of new life now, but that there is an even greater freedom in the life that is to come. So there's no need for us who are in Christ to fear death. Hear this quote from Charles Spurgeon, one more from Spurgeon. He says this, death comes to the ungodly man as a punishment, but to the righteous as a summons to his father's palace. And if you have been crucified with Christ, his resurrection becomes yours. But this truth doesn't just impact our eternity, it impacts our here and now. Because what's true of Jesus becomes true of you. Let that truth just sink in for a second. What's true of Jesus is true of you. The same access Jesus has to the Father, you have. Just as Jesus was seen as righteous and blameless and pure, so are you. I know it may not feel like it, but the word of God tells us that's the truth. In fact, God found this so important to tell us that over a hundred times in scripture, it tells us that we are in Christ. Meaning everything that's true of him is true of you. Do you understand what this means, family? It means that when God looks at you, he sees his son. He doesn't see somebody that's clothed in, in filthy rags. He sees somebody clothed in Christ's righteousness. Maybe these are truths you've heard before, but I need you to understand the true value of this family. Because you may see yourself as unlovable. You may see yourself as abandoned, forsaken, or condemned. But the gospel tells us that you have been crucified with Christ 
So the same things that are true of him are true of you. You've been adopted as sons and daughters of Christ. You have been forgiven. You have been brought in. You have been set free. You are his beloved. What's true of Christ is true of you. And so here's what that means. Your life should now mirror his. Since you have been crucified with Christ, since what's true of him is now true of you, it is no longer you who live. It is Christ who lives in you. So the end result should be a life that looks like Jesus. And here's what will happen. If you're still in the mindset of counting pennies, this is going to feel impossible. Because how could your life ever stack up to his? It can't. But if you see this through the truth of the gospel, then you'll know this requires just one thing. Dying to yourself so that Jesus might live through you. Listen, family, don't leave the truth of the gospel, the true value of it hanging on your fridge this morning. Would you take it? Would you receive it? Would you embrace it for all that it is worth? And would you allow Christ to live through you?